Well, welcome back to Conversations at the Leaky Cauldron, episode 27, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, chapters 31 to epilogue. And back with me are my esteemed colleagues for this final uh, part one of two, uh, just like the movies, Miss Sarah Miller and Mr. Wesley Schatz. Welcome back, you two. Hey, good to be back. How's it going? It's going great. Yeah, good. Long time no chat. Long time no chat. Plenty of time though to uh, to get revved up and ready for this. I, you know, I found myself just from the pathetic element, uh, sometime in tears during the course of this uh, this these final chapters, and that's that's altogether a pretty incredible feat, just because the conditions under which I was often listening to to this beautiful book were while I was in an hour long commute, thirty minutes of which were you know bumper to bumper traffic and so getting a tear out of me at that time that has nothing to do with rage is uh i think quite some feat um uh, also tearing me from the stupor of bumper to bumper traffic as well um but uh on the more serious note i thought what i'd let the listeners know is that what we talked about beforehand is that we might hit some of the broader more global questions about what fantasy literature is doing exactly maybe within a social context and even maybe within a psychological or more broadly literary context in our next episode but in this episode um i i thought i i could throw out some ideas we can just dismiss them if we want uh but maybe one of them will um will light a you know, light a good flame and will lead us down an interesting passage. Um, and so without further ado, I just wanted to mention, so Harry dead naming Voldemort and refusing to play his game, I thought was very interesting. Not calling him Dark Lord, not even calling him Voldemort, calling him Tom Riddle. And I wanted to see what y'all thought about that and the power of words and how that might have connected back to spells or just what's happening with literature in general. Um, the end of the story literally involving the killing of a snake, the final Horcrux Nagini, as well as a snake-like being, Voldemort, and possibly even the evil inside of uh, Harry, which could be represented mythologically as a snake, and how that is, um, and how Voldemort is even more snake-like. He's described as a snake, but he also sheds his skin, and also people for that matter. Um, how that's also a Christian idea, with the idea of St. Patrick beating off the snakes, from the British Isles, Revelation ending with a giant dragon, which is a snake, uh, seemingly the uh, super form of the snake in the Garden of Eden from the Old Testament. And in Dante's Purgatorio, at the bottom of Purgatorio is a snake, and at the top is a giant dragon. Um, and uh, that's also more broadly mythological. You can find this sort of imagery in uh, Greek um, in Greek stories, the apples of the Hesperides are guarded by a dragon, and Gerion is a dragon. He's one of the um, creatures that must be destroyed by Heracles during his um, 12 labors. Also, this is a broadly uh, fairy tale motif. I was wondering if y'all wanted to talk about that at all. Also, the Christian sacrifice of the son by the father and freely being chosen by the son. This one's for you, uh, Wes. Neville's part is the unchosen one and what that even means. Uh, the strange magic of Harry's death. I, I didn't understand this. And the heaven scene with Dumbledore, who now proves that he is a role manifesting directly in Harry's mind. I was wondering about that. Where, what is Dumbledore doing? What is his status there? Is, is this a spirit thing? Is this a mental thing? He does make an interesting comment about the mind there and uh, things being in the mind being real, very Kantian. Uh, I, I didn't understand how the Elder Wand 
got to Harry's dominance, I sort of understood, but I wasn't sure whether I missed something. Um, and uh, I, okay, also just because in the news recently, uh, Harry Potter books got banned at a, a Catholic elementary school, I believe it was in Tennessee, and one of our friends was a, uh, an alumnus from there. In what way is Harry Potter anti-Christian in a non-evangelical way? And then also uh, Snape's special memories. What were his true feelings for Harry? Did he think Dumbledore's plan to sacrifice him was cruel? Did he actually care for Harry? Uh, problem with the death of Fred instead of Ron. I definitely want to mention that at some point. You, you've helped me hype that up, Wes. Thank you very much. And I, I think I'm going to stick with my argument against that. Yeah, I think that was a mistake. And I want to understand the resurrec resurrection zone a little bit better with y'all. So hopefully uh, I'm done talking for the rest of the time. Sorry for that long list, y'all. I just want to put a major feast on the table. Gosh, well, where should we start, Sarah? What do you think? Um, I mean, I would add in um, a couple pieces before we pick where to start. Just other, and you know, I think a lot of things yeah. overlapped, but things that things that we can talk about, things that we notice. Um, I'm super interested in why Harry um, saves. Draco Malfoy multiple times um, or save that family and um, saving Draco at first in the room of requirement and then um, uh, telling um, his mother that he's still alive and, and, and basically being saved as a consequence. Um, and then the other, another thing that I'm really interested in is um, right in, in the battle sequence, there's a moment when like all of these women are fighting and the moment when like Molly Weasley steps in and starts fighting Bellatrix is a level of like powerful language used to describe the art of like magical battle that I had never heard before. She, they like, she made the earth like warm. Um, and I just, I thought that was, it was really cool. I mean, I think it's easy to, you know, um, forget like the, the role in, especially in a battle sequence, the role that women play. And she seems to kind of com um, complicate those stereotypes. So I don't know where to start, but those were two other things in addition to what you said. I'm sort of interested in a lot of what you said, Alex, um, why Neville is able to uh, kill the snake and um, why Voldemort's uh, final set of spells don't seem to work on anybody. I think that that's really an important piece to investigate. So oh, what do you think, Wes? Yeah, well, so the final battle has many parts to it and it kind of has these crests and these valleys to it. Um, there's the chapter that's that's called the Battle of Hogwarts, but that's really just like round one, right? Um, and then it does wind up. Actually, the final duel takes place in the in the hall, but there's that part in the in the woods between the two, and um, and all of the stuff that takes place in Harry's mind that, that we mentioned a little bit about, and in um, Snape's mind too, for that matter, right? The, the pensive pops back in here. Um, and offstage, yeah, other characters are doing important stuff too. You got 
Ron and Hermione descending to the to the uh, Chamber of Secrets. This is one of the strangest things to me reading it this time was that Ron can speak Parseltongue well enough to open the right. Chamber of Secrets. Right. That was awesome. Uh, good for him. Um, so, yeah, uh, bringing back some basilisk fangs, which can apparently destroy Horcruxes. Another thing that can destroy them, fiend fire. This like incredibly powerful magic that we have never heard of before, but makes its appearance here, um, and you know is crucial because it destroys one of the Horcruxes also. Um, so there's just like there's just a lot uh, going on here, and I I guess to start with the um, the the Hallows versus Horcruxes theme really comes out um, in a in a powerful way. That Dumbledore that's in his mind um, sort of confesses that he was led astray by the Hallows, right? By his own good intentions. Um, that that one Hallow, which is both a Hallow and a Horcrux, right? The the Resurrection Stone. He was he was tempted by it, and in his uh, eagerness, he put it on, and that was sort of the first sign of his his decline, right? Um, but we learn that Harry is also kind of a hallow and a horcrux, right? Because he's descended from the line of the uh, brother that got the cloak. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's also, you know, actually an accidental horcrux uh, created by Voldemort. And, um, and that's how I understand that to be how he, you know, dies and is uh, resurrected there, right? Because the part of him that dies is the, is the Voldemort part in him. Um, and so, you know, we get this image once again of Voldemort being his own undoing. Um, the thing that he considered the most powerful, right? The Elder Wand. The way that I understood that was that because Draco had disarmed Dumbledore, Draco was the rightful possessor right. of it, okay. not Snape. That's the key uh, little detail there i think and and harry of course had defeated draco one question though when he defeated draco draco was not in the possession of the elder wand even if he was the master of the elder wand is that the case because yeah as far as i can trace wand is with so even if you beat the person with the elder wand when they're not using the elder wand it will change allegiance i think that First of all, I think that has to be the case in order for it to make any sense. Right, right. <laughs> but, but, but right, otherwise it's like, what? Um, but it's like a, a Reddit plot hole. But like, uh, I think it, it points out that to be master of something doesn't mean you use it, right? Um, mm. Like, uh, mastery isn't pure utility, I guess. And, it can be restrained, uh, Right. It seems as though that's the lesson that Grindelwald did not accept and that Dumbledore only accepted. The the idea that there is power in having something and not using it or in in restraint. Um, I'm not going to... I I guess I I think that that seems to be the lesson of the Elder One, right? And that's like the, the fact that Voldemort isn't interested in the other two. And neither was Grindelwald. Um, uh, not like that. That to see 
dominance or power or strength as a, as measured only by the degree to which you um, subjugate others. I think that that, I mean, that's the lesson of the, I mean, one of the lessons of the entire series is that that actually isn't power. Um, and it, it it's intimidation um, and it maybe allows you to accumulate temporary position, um, but, but it's ultimately an enervating um, choice. Uh, and like self-defeating um, and that Harry must have been the master of the hallows, even if he didn't possess uh, um, the elder one, because it was about like a disposition. Um, like he didn't even, I, I don't know if that makes any sense. And I think the idea is that he doesn't, the Harry part of himself doesn't die because the elder one won't kill its owner it will kill what is inside its owner, right? And so Voldemort eliminates his own Horcrux, I guess. Well, that's perfect that's, that's, because then it's- That's how I like understood a, it. Yeah, I have a lot to say in response to that in agreement. Then it's almost like that's Dante's point about the power of the Logos, that it illuminates the darkness within and that the ultimate use isn't defined the, uh, the splinter in the eye of your neighbor, but the moat within. It's as if the Elder Wand, the best use is to destroy the darkness within yourself. That's what's evil within yourself. That which Harry has been struggling against this entire series and especially the last mm -hmm. couple books. And so mm -hmm. the Elder Wand's true power, and this is almost uh, something that Obi-Wan Kenobi tries to say in Star Wars, but you know these motifs overlap, um, is to, to use the power of the Elder Wand to destroy anything, to destroy what's evil within yourself is the only way you can destroy Lord, Lord Voldemort insofar as he is the proximate representation of the archetype of evil in this world. Um, and that again, Harry embodies the father as the son of Dumbledore and that he becomes, you just alerted me to this, the master of the Hallows <coughs> without wit seeking to become master of the Hallows. Mm -hmm. And for totally unselfish reasons, the very same reason that he first received the Resurrection Stone or the Philosopher's Stone. I, I think those are the same thing. Are they not? Mm -hmm. A question I have for you too. Um, <clears throat> but just as a, having a broad uh, response to what the connection between the Horcruxes or the Horcruxes and the, um, the Hallows is, is that they, they all seem to, as magics, separate the owner from others. Uh, whether it be giving them some privilege they shouldn't have, like being able to resurrect the dead and being separate from others, or, or you know, making you so powerful that you relate to others in a unique way, like a tyrant, or that you can just totally be away from others in an invisible way. And Horcruxes, of course, separate you off too. It's, I, I wonder to what extent part of the, uh, the message of, of these ultimate pieces of magic is that they're no magic at all insofar as magic separates you from people and insofar as the ultimate evil magic actually separates you from your own soul or separates the integrity of your soul and also separates people's bodies from their soul, about a cadavera, um, it, it, it's, it's not magic. It's something else. You've missed the true magic. And I, I'd like to touch on true magic and the role I think Molly Weasley embodies against the role 
uh, Bellatrix embodies uh, a little bit later, I would like to say that she represents mother and sort of an ultimate feminine and just human motivation, whereas Bellatrix represents the poverty of nihilism and not standing for anything in those in that moment. Um, uh, yeah, so that that's what I had to say just immediately in response to what you had said, uh, uh, Sarah. Yeah, no, um, I like that idea that um, the things that separate what ought to be unified seem to be um, things that are worth, at best, keeping at arm's length, right? And at, at worst, destroying, right? Um, maybe there's something to the fact then that um, you know, Harry provides other people opportunities, um, wittingly or no, to um, eliminate those horcruxes, right? Like, um, with the locket, Ron is the one to destroy the um, piece of the soul inside. Hermione right. um, destroys right. the cup. It's almost as though, like, the like nature in some way destroys the diadem some some like messed up version of fire um neville destroys the snake it's like he's providing on maybe unintentionally um he's like working as a part of a team there's there's to eliminate these these items and and I, I think what you said about like it's interesting that he is a seeker by by training you know in terms of sports but he he actively chooses not to seek the horcruxes or not sorry the horcruxes the the hallows like he he's given the chance to choose that and he chooses not to um, for whatever reason whatever in him guided him in that direction I don't know that it's clear but there's something. Um, that seems that seems significant. I don't know. Maybe it has to do with his ties to other people. That Dumbledore, as a young person, um, sort of eschewed. Right? He had his follower friend, and he had a brother that he looked down on, and then he had a si sister that it was his job to take care of. Maybe he pitied, um, but he didn't really have a team. Um, people with whom he was genuinely um, like in communion with or in community with at least he's not presented as having that yeah it's sad a bit about Dumbledore's story and maybe more of this will come out as AK Rowling into the backstory um, but he he passes over well of course the voice that he is in Harry's mind passes over things about him um, in his battle with Grindelwald and, and kind of how it was that he was able to defeat this other really powerful wizard um, who had the most powerful wand, right? That, that be, that remains kind of a mystery. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. That I suspect has to do with Dumbledore's great, you know, answer of love. Right. And there's, there's definitely like hints, maybe this is another rabbit hole. Um, but hints that there's a, a love relationship between Grindelwald, uh, which I mm. love pronouncing it that way, and Dumbledore. Um, that is kind of interesting, right? This power of love 
has many different manifestations in the story. Um, one really important one that you brought up was with Snape loving the part of Harry's mother that is still in him, which is represented by his eyes, right? As Snape is expiring, <laughs> he wants to look in Harry's eyes one more time. Um, the black and the green, right? Uh, it's just very, very well done. Like as much as I've criticized this book out of all the others in the series, those are some of the most emotionally packed kind of reveals that we get at the end, you know, with Snape's whole story of um, puppy love for, for Lily Potter or the Evans, right? Who would become Lily Potter. Um, there's just a lot of really excellent kind of denouement that happens here. <laughs> and some happens off stage, right? The, um, the destruction of some of these Horcruxes is just like a blink of an eye that we've been building up to it over this long, long book. Um, but, but it's still excellent. Uh, the, the kiss between uh, Hermione and Ron, when Ron suggests they have to save the house elves uh, in the um, Hogwarts kitchens, right? There's a lot of beautiful kind of moments here. Um, but, but again, yeah, I think that that love theme is the kind of other side of that separation theme, maybe. That, um, so, so the way that evil undoes itself and, and causes separation, love sort of knits things back together. And that's the last image mm -hmm. in the story proper is Harry he uses the elder wand for one thing only is to, to fix his old wand. And it, um, you know, it's kind of that, that great knitting together, stitching together the last scene with one of the first where he gets the wand in the first place. Yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> Very much profound. I'm just thinking about that and uh, to what extent um, what Harry is doing in that moment is accepting limitation, is accepting, you know, one of the images of love, besides the sort of pagan image of cupiditas and Cupid sort of seizing you in the language of Francesca from the Inferno, but uh, that more of the Christian idea, which is a, a chosen bondage to something, um, there's a bond that is accepted. And so what, what Harry seems to be accepting here is limitation on his power so that he can remain human because there's no greater state than that. That um, insofar as somebody seeks to be something more than human, they will necessarily be less than human, uh, like Voldemort or like um, Dumbledore and his withered hand in the last year. Um, just two things I wanted to comment about that are, are that, um, I found the way that Snape's memories were revealed satisfying, and I did not consider that trite nor an unnecessary break in the action, um, uh, nor was I bothered by the fact that the pensieve was still there, even though Albus Dumbledore had not been there and the, the room had been occupied by a different headmaster. Um, but I think that headmaster must have been Snape, so it makes sense. Um, uh, and I also was not bothered by, by Dumbledore being presented as somewhat cold. I, I thought that that was actually a real strength of this book, whereas he had appeared to be getting more and more sort of emotional um, and uh, to the extent of sort of losing the integrity of his character. Uh, I thought it, he's also shown as still being very much in control of his intellect and having a plan and having an incredible plan that, uh, that ultimately works, uh, you know, and, and, 
and still being very much insightful too. When he's talking to Snape, he just dismissively says, he's not arrogant like James. He's very much more like his mother. And it's just that sort of deep level insight that he can just throw at Snape, who is himself a genius, as we know. Um, but, but, you know, the depths of Dumbledore's mind do, do go deeper even than, even than Snape's. The things he can consider, like sacrificing Harry, but himself also, because he knows Harry, knows that Harry will accept the conditions of the sacrifice, because he knows his character in a way that Snape does not. And uh, so, so I, I just wanted to mention that I was happy to see Dumbledore again across media, seemingly, not only in uh, Harry's mind, but also also in the Pensieve. Um, and I, I was happy to see that he, even if he did come off as cold, came off very much as himself, as the character Dumbledore. Yeah, I, I love the the various media. Um, <laughs> there's the Pensieve, we get the resurrection stone ghosts which are sort of ghosts but sort of just in again in harry's mind or projections um they're kind of like those those disembodied forms that came out of the um priori and cantatum moment uh right in the sort of the heart of the the whole series the, the middle point then also um the ghost of of ravenclaw right the the ghost that like the fiend fire that's just kind of thrown in there there's this other ghost in the in the castle that we've never met um but of course there has to be one for ravenclaw and so she kind of reveals uh, another moment that was planted in the very beginning of the story like what's going on in albania such that you know voldemort goes there when he's disembodied well it's because he's finding his um He's finding that 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 hat that the Ravenclaw family has imbued with power that he wants. Um, <laughs> there, so yeah, there's there's just a lot of um, kind of uh, bravura pieces of of showmanship here of bringing in magic and um, ghosts and forms and all these different ways um, to such an extent apparently that certain authorities consider this book very dangerous and not to be read by impressionable young people. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, maybe there's something to that, you know? Um, maybe it is a, a very powerful thing that has to be treated with, with great care and, uh, and exorcism if necessary. Well, you know, in, insofar as exorcism is allegorically understood as sort of censorship, what I think it really is at this point, you know, getting rid of the bad thoughts that come from the literature that causes the bad thoughts, I think might be the idea underlying it. But I, I think that idea might be, if that idea is an idea that exists in order to maintain the health of the child, I think that is an ill-founded idea because the idea in confronting something like Harry Potter and then something, you know, much more you know, much deeper and more powerful than Harry Potter later on, like Nietzsche or the Bible um, or the Iliad, um, is that you are exposing a student, a, a young person to a bogger, essentially, that will take a certain form and they will have to do combat with it, with their young discerning mind. And a young adult literature uh, fantasy novel like this is sort of put at the cognitive level that a, a, like a video game that a, a young person can deal with, the level of complexity that they can see evil at and resonate with and start to form their character against. Um, 
<clears throat> though I, I also understand the evangelical case against this and that it is a literal case that there is magic happening and that is therefore evil. I, I don't understand. Uh, I would, I suppose I would not understand a case being made against this book suggesting that it's underlying morals or the underlying symbols uh, are contrary to what you would find taught in a, uh, a, a Catholic Christian environment or just a general Christian environment. Um, just to address that, that thing that's happening in Tennessee right now, uh, from my perspective. I think it's terribly ironic that we're, we're, we found out about that. I mean, it's probably a small story, maybe being blown out of proportion. I don't know. My guess is it won't last given that it's become national news, but for sure. Um, at least in some circles, but like, uh, it's just ironic to me that like this passage is like the most Christian section that we've read the entire series, I would argue. Um, and I, I just, I find that just almost, like it's laugh out loud. The way I wept out loud um, when Fred died and when um, Snape died, I, I am of the belief that Snape is maybe um, a different kind of hero to the story than, than Harry. I, I think maybe a, a hero that at least on in a, in a Christian in a Christian lens, Snape is more like us than Harry. Um, uh, he's much more like broken and um, like majority flawed in his being. Um, and he wrestles with stuff a lot more than I think Harry does, but that that's, that's just, I, I think that's just, um, that's just me, but it's, it's just the height of irony to me that like the son offers his life willingly for the sake of the many, like fully reconciled with the fact that he's about to die. And in doing so, that's what saves him. Um, and he comes back and he defeats the evil spirit and it's just so religious um not like to the point of chronicles of narnia this is all so obvious kind of religious but like i don't know no no i agree there's just the sort of underlying uh, landscape of symbols and uh i would say ethics as well uh, mm -hmm. are sort of similar. It's not, it's not done in uh, a superficial or conscious way, I would say, which would make it feel maybe tackier or, 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 you know, more like, you know, uh, art in the service of another idea rather than art for art's sake, which, so I'm not making the claim also when I mention, uh, similarities and symbols that this is a consciously Christian work that should be on the Christian part of a, uh, a bookshelf at a bookstore. But um, just that many of the symbols uh, mean the same thing. And so, <laughs> and so just because we're getting close to sort of the arbitrary limit that we set for this particular uh, conversation, I just wanted to address uh, one of two points before we ended. Uh, either the death of Fred, 
which I know was a gut-wrenching one, uh, or um, Voldemort's name, but I think I just want to mention the death of Fred very quickly. So something I've had a problem with uh, since before we reread this was the fact that Fred dies rather than Ron. And it was pretty popular in the literature that at the time, J.K. Rowling was receiving endless letters from a young fan saying, please don't kill Ron. And so I think that she consciously chose not to kill Ron against her better authorial uh, um, uh, judgment and pandered slightly to the fans. And um, my argument for that is that it is a common trope that the best friend must die for the great hero to live up to his destiny. And that allegorically, that's sort of like the death of the lesser path so that the greater path can be taken by means of choice for someone. So Achilleus and Patroclus are an old theme here. Even older than that are Enkidu and Gilgamesh. Enkidu dies, Gilgamesh becomes great. Uh, Patroclus dies, Achilleus lives up to his destiny. Um, uh, I, I could probably name even more than that, but just uh, it, it is a major theme in any case. And I, if I have to list more, I will. Uh, but I think that Ron should have died and that that would have really heightened the emotional impact of the Battle of Hogwarts. I think it would have been the perfect emotional pitch. I think it would have been gut-wrenching, truly gut-wrenching. Like, I think people would avoid reading this story because it would hurt so bad to see that. And I don't think that it would just be pain in the service of pain because I think that would be uh, Harry having to overcome the hate that he would feel for Voldemort in order to make this a story about love and not make him a, a third Achilles, a second Aeneas, a, a yet another protagonist who's overcome by hate because of something just unendurable at the end, I think it would have made this, uh, uh, you know, a masterpiece. I, yeah, I can see that. I didn't know that part about the kid writing letters to her begging to keep Ron alive, but um, I, I get this sort of the, the sense of that, right? That she can imagine the effect that her book is going to have on the people reading it. She wants to spare them that blow. Um, I, the way I think about it is that that would have made Ron in some way too important, possibly like as a sacrificial figure when the sacrifice that we're concerned with here is both Harry's and, and to an extent, um, Snape's as well, right? There's already an awful lot of sacrifice going on. So, so having another death would be, dare I say, overkill <laughs> of a major character. But uh, <laughs> uh, the, the character who dies, right, Fred, is, is maybe elevated to a status that he otherwise wouldn't have had by his death there. It's it's passed over pretty quickly, you know. It it's given a certain amount of pathos, but it isn't like dwelt on to a great extent. Um, even as much as like Dobby's death earlier in the book was, you know, it's treated a it's treated in passing, and because of the the impulse of the action, you know, Tonks dies, and so does um, uh, Lupin, you know, and so there's a lot of death going on. I I don't feel as strongly that it was a a mistake or an error on her part to leave Ron alive. Um, I, I just, I'm just glad that Neville made it out. 
<laughs> yeah, long live, long live Neville, right? Um, I, I am sort of more with you, Wes. Um, I don't, I don't find like it a, to be a glaring error. Um, and, and the reason for that is, uh, is a couple things. I think in the, in the, in the two examples that you gave, Alex, of the lesser version of the man dying, right? The lesser path so that the hero might be inspired to take their, their place, right? I mean, I think you could see like versions of that in, um, like the Star Wars trilogy, right? Like the loss of Obi-Wan or even for, um, for Rey, um, like the death of the father figure and Han Solo being like this precipitating moment. Sorry, spoiler alert if you haven't seen um, the more recent Star Wars. Oh, no. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but uh, yeah, I think um, like a, a close death being the reason why you go onto the battlefield or, you know, the, the, the thing that makes you accept your mission and your identity. See, I, the thing for Harry is I think, I think he is presented as far more sensitive already to his ties to people. Like he doesn't have just one best friend, right? He's very sensitive to the fact that, you know, the hopes of the wizarding community are riding on him. He's got Hermione. He has the entire Weasley family. That's basically his surrogate family. And I think he almost doesn't need the death of his best friend to like jostle him into action the same way as maybe other more lone figures might. But um, I also think like his greatness is not in the same kind of battle. Um it's not in uh like he was already willing to make make that sacrifice without Ron dying, I think. Um and the other thing too, I think, is that um like that would really complicate the the storyline with Hermione if Ron died. Right. Um I think that would be I think I think that might might be just as good a reason to keep him alive. Even though, even though Hermione can do better, but uh, <laughs> she loves him and Harry loves her. And I think there was, I read somewhere that like, there were people who thought that eventually Hermione and Harry should be together um, and they should kind of fulfill that fear that Ron always had. But, you know, it just, I love that a platonic friendship between a boy and a girl and like that is that is a hallmark of the modern world I think and um I think to to take Ron's life would have really damaged this character that quite frankly did more for the mission in the seventh book than a lot of other people um, Dumbledore was even counting like, on it right saved him some time. sorry Dumbledore was even counting on it. He thought that Harry would figure things out sooner because of the help of Hermione. And, right, which uh, Harry was refusing at multiple turns, right? Like, um, yeah, I thought... <laughs> um, exactly. Yeah, I think, uh, I think that's sort of, to me, 
another, I mean, it may not be a narratively honest reason to, to kill Fred instead of, instead of Ron. Um, but it sits with me. I'm, I'm comfortable with it. Well, I just thought, you know, and so a couple more examples just from epic literature at first and then something, a funny one is that, you know, in the Aeneid, uh, Aeneas loses his, uh, I guess, new best friend, Pallas, who he promised to keep alive. Mm-hmm. And in the Divine Comedy, it is the case in Dante's life that he has exiled his best friend, Guido Cavalcante, who then died of malaria later that same year. And so might have felt partially responsible even for that death in a very Achilles Patroclus sort of way. Uh, and, you know, even in the Mortal Kombat movie, Liu Kang doesn't step up to his destiny without that uh, younger brother. But I do agree with you. I think I see it differently. <laughs> I, so I think that archetype is real without it necessarily being operant in this mm-hmm. case. Because I, I do agree that his motivations are already sound. He, he might not need that extra pain. And maybe that, maybe that kindness uh, to a character is also part of authorial uh, intent or the author's relationship with the characters and the community of people that house the characters in their hearts and minds. Um, but... One thing, though, is that's tragic, though, is jo- George, you know. One thing that said after the books is that he can never cast a Patronus again. And that it's just those twins without each other. I, I mean, I guess it's the, the moment of ultimate self-growth for old Georgie, but geez, that seems rather cruel because they were they're really like an echo chamber or just, uh, you know, they were like one being, and uh, so I don't know exactly what to do with that, though, though I do agree with both your reasoning and I am seeing this uh, situation differently now. So I'm glad I brought it up. I, yeah, I am too, because it's, it's something that I, I know is a, a huge, you know, epic topos or something, right? Um, and I like the point about, you know, Fred and George being this kind of unit that's now severed there at the end um their their spirit is such a big part of what makes the books come alive um and so you know to lose that in a way drives you maybe to want to reread the books you know to go back to recover that that kind of thing when everyone's still together and still alive you know those first three books don't have moments like that so much um but then you get Cedric and you get, um, oh, what's his name? Sirius and, and so on. What's his name? Yeah. And then Dumbledore and then lots of people. And uh, yeah. I, so and, yeah, I, I think there's, so what did these two boys, I mean, two as basically one, I mean, that was like the running joke is that they were constantly being mistaken for one another, even by their own mother um, what, what they seem to represent to me is like a kind of levity, um, uh, mm. a, a childishness, um, and not, not in a bad way, but like, um, they're jokesters, they're, um, practical pranksters, they are entrepreneurial, they're imaginative and creative, um, and they, to me, are, are really, all of the good and all of the bad of adolescence, right? Um, they're 
They're fiercely loyal to their friends. They rag on people they hate. They're the worst students in the class, and yet they're the smartest kids, you know, potentially in their entire family, given what they then create. Um, they, you know, they go through so much ordinary, so many ordinary experiences of the adolescent. And then, I don't know, maybe, maybe what happens to Fred and George at the end you know, George has previously lost his ear um, and he still makes a joke about it. Right. Um, obviously, you know, in, realistically, it probably is a a terrible um, burden for him to learn to live with. But even when we hear them on the radio, they are still making um, making moments of levity. And and in fact, it's in like those really dark moments where Harry and Ron and, and Hermione need this humor. But it, it makes me wonder, like, where is the role of comedy in a world like that's at peace, right? Um, because I think comedy often presents the world, like in our world, comedy often like raises the mirror and pokes fun at the things that are true and ugly and uh and does so and like you laugh about it but it's also kind of like yucky right but maybe there's something about the the era that they're entering into where that kind of humor i don't know maybe it doesn't have a place i don't know that's that's the only way that i can sort of make sense of it i'm not sure that i buy that um but i don't know is there something that's like distinctly childlike about them yeah i think what i see like a light through the prism of your thought there sarah is that what's happening there is they are serving as a metaphor or as a symbol as an allegory for the death of youth of everybody involved with these books the characters within Mm -hmm. as well as us at the end of them if we've read them at sort of uh a yearly interval, which many of us did growing up, that uh, as perfect as those characters were, they both died in that moment because George became an adult, forever different, forever severed from that childlike uh, sort of uh, perfection or pan nature, that Peter Pan uh, everything nature. If this were in the His Dark Materials world, everybody's diamond would have been set right about that moment. And so it, it, I agree that they can't move on because after, after this battle of Hogwarts, when people's characters are set, when they're adults, they, they just can't act in that way anymore. They can't be so jubilant. They can't be so naive. as They can't be so free-spirited even as, as Fred and George, who are already becoming you know, rather capitalists in their, their, their lives anyway. But... It, I think you're right that it shows a, per, a character progression uh, from childhood into adulthood that um, even they could only be that way at that age, but even they would have mm-hmm. to be adults. And so in one way it's easier for Fred because he never has to not be that. But George also gets to experience, you know, a full, a fuller life though part of the richness and fullness of it is of course the, the, the horrendous tragedy of losing his best friend and twin. And, and it's not fair, right? Like even when things are restored, I mean, 
the writ large, right? Even when Voldemort is destroyed and Harry is cleansed and Hogwarts is saved, that doesn't mean everything ends up good for everyone, right? Like Remus and Tonks are dead. Their son is an orphan. That, I mean, their son is orphaned, maybe not the way Harry was orphaned because obviously this, this young lad is being raised in a very loving household, but, um, uh, like just because quote unquote the good side triumphs doesn't mean that it's all fair. Um, and I, I think that that it's, it's maybe it's right that it does sit like uncomfortably with people that like, Oh, but I loved them. They were so wonderful. Why don't they get to live a full life? Well, like that just isn't how, I don't know. That isn't, that that doesn't track with even like grand clashes between um good you know good and evil there's there's damage i don't know um yeah. but even at the end in king's cross in that chapter with dumbledore in his mind the the first thing that dumbledore says to him is um my wonderful boy my brave brave man like in one sentence he goes from boy to man in the voice of his like mentally projected Dumbledore, but um, that's given what we've talked about this over the last year about maturation, that seemed important. Well, let's talk about that next time. Let's lead with the importance of language and, um, you know, make some connections between boys becoming men or children becoming adults and uh, the unique place that Hermione has in that conversation which you brought up and being the uniquely modern situation and uh you know we really are very much unique and that's uh, in that sense that we're we have her uh character arc that we have a new two posts in development and so maybe we'll hit so we can hit these bigger themes of language and development uh i can mention the we can all mention the aeneid the odyssey maybe even some james joyce too stephen daedalus and maybe even our own generation and then again, uh, talk a little bit about um, just uh, the place that this book occupies um, in, in uh, I, I suppose, our lives, but also in our world at this point and what it's doing. And then uh, talk about, um, well, what fantasy literature is and what a fantasy world is or, or whatever else that we end up talking about, which uh, I'm sure will be enlightening as usual yeah i we've got a we've got a lot left to do but um it's been really cool getting to talk about this end of this book it's great great stuff um i'm sorry i forgot sirius's name for a minute there <laughs> i'll be haunted. I'm just he, he he would joke that he'd probably forget him himself anyway so i think all forgiven all right. Well, bottoms up, y'all. I, I would be having some chamomile tea or some mineral water. Um, and um, uh, I, 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 I say congratulations to you as well, Wes, uh, bringing more things into life rather than just brilliant thoughts. Um, thank you. We'll raise a glass to that one of these yeah. days. Yeah, yeah cheers. To you, to you both. So many new things on your horizon. So cheers to you yeah. both. Yeah, you know, reading all this Harry Potter about family and the power of love. Got to get on it. Got to live it. All right. All right. Well, talk to you soon.
Peter. Peter. Cheers.